It has, uh, it's been a little while uh, since we have been in the Gospel according to John. We are working our way through that in our regular uh, preaching. Um, it's going to be one more week. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to getting back into the Gospel according to John. I've uh, really enjoyed it. It's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult book, but it's been good and enjoyable and has spurred, I think, us on. And so we will pick up, Lord willing, next week in chapter 7 when we resume our study there. But we have some work to do this morning. Uh, and so we're going to do something a little bit different than normally, something I try to avoid doing, actually. And instead of picking one key passage and sticking with it, we're going to look at several passages this morning. So we're going to be flipping around a little bit today, so I apologize in advance, but this is necessary work. Um, I'm going to start here by reading Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, to kind of give us a, a reference point uh, where we're going, and then we're going to go from there. And after I read this, we'll just stop one more time and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us as we work through God's Word here this morning. Um, so Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 Paul writes this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, I must decrease and Christ must increase. And so we pray that, um, pray that we would see Christ. That we would have ears to hear and understand the words that you would say to us this morning from your word. That we may be not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine but that we may be rooted and established in, in your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to talk this morning about biblical eldership. Um, but before we get to elders, we need to understand that we, as Christians, as members of Christ's church, we have been given certain commands. We've been given commands that pertain more to, more to what we are to be than to what we are to do. So what are we to be? Who are we as Christians to be? Well, Jesus' final command in Matthew's gospel, he said this to his disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, was this. And, and listen, to the, listen to the gravity of this command for Christians. You've heard it before. But pay attention to the gravity of this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, let me say that again. All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Jesus actually seldom kind of wielded this kind of authority in commanding his disciples when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He didn't say that very often. And what, he, what he's actually saying here is that we are to be, as a church, based on the authority that he has given us, the commands that we are to be is really we are to be deep and we're to be wide. We're to be deep in making disciples. He says, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, all that Jesus has commanded. That's a long-term commitment. This is a, a lifetime commitment. It is patiently sharing the gospel and teaching the scriptures to our children in the faith, some of which will be our children, and many of which will be our children in the faith the one and others. Making disciples takes work, it takes commitment, and it takes, really, a lifetime. But not only are we to be deep, we're also to be wide. We're to go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said. We're to be letting the Holy Spirit lead us in such a way that we're open and willing and able and eager to follow Him anywhere in our pursuit of obedience to His command. Maybe Bell Fountain, maybe Mongolia, maybe DeGraff, maybe Columbus, maybe Poland. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, we are to be disciple-making disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. But again, this is not merely outward actions. Being a Christian is, is not about doing things. Yes, there's things that we do. We're doing one of them now. We're gathering and assembling together as the church. Being a Christian is not merely about outward actions. Being a Christian is not merely about doing things or not doing things. Being a Christian is about being redeemed and therefore being like Jesus. So, so let me put it this way. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, He said, A new commandment I give you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, he said in Matthew 28. Just as I have loved you, is the command, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In the New Testament, there are something like 59 one another's. 59 ways in which the outside world, really in which we show the outside world that we love one another. 59 ways in which the outside world can see that we are Jesus' disciples. I think this is important enough to give you all 59 of these this morning. Ready? Be at peace with, I'm not kidding, be at peace with one another. Mark 9, verse 50. Wash one another's feet. John chapter 13, verse 14. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 13, 34. 
Love one another with brotherly affection, Romans 12, verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12, verse 10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, verse 16. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, Romans 15, verse 7. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul writes that one twice, Romans 16, 16, and 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Wait for one another. This was with regards to the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-three. So to do it in communion together. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. There's two. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Through love, serve one another. Galatians five thirteen. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, verse 2. Bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4, verse 2. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, Ephesians 4.32. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. Do not lie to one another, Colossians 3.9. Bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, Colossians 3.13. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, Colossians 3, 16. Encourage one another, again, twice, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 18 and Hebrews 10, 25. He says, encourage one another. Encourage one another and build one another up, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Always seek to do good to one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. Exhort one another every day, Hebrews 3, 13. Stir up one another to love and good works, Hebrews 10.24. Do not speak evil against one another, James 4.11. Do not grumble against one another, James 5.9. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, James 5.16. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, 1 Peter 1.22. Keep loving one another earnestly, 1 Peter 4.8. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 1 Peter 4, 9. Serve one another. 1 Peter 4, 10. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 1 Peter 5, 5. Greet one another with the kiss of love. This time Peter says it. 1 Peter 5, verse 14. And then we have love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. Five times John, in his uh, epistles, explicitly commands this. In his letters there, in 1 John 3, 3.11, 3.23, 4.7, 1 John 4.12, and 2 John 1.5. Love one another, he says. Ephesians 4.16, that I read earlier, says that we are joined and held together. That's what this love one another is. How are we doing with all those things? I read them fast, but I think probably you were thinking about them as I said them. We're doing Okay. Let's be honest. I love this church. You guys are doing pretty good. But we always have more to do, more to go. We are joined and held together. That's what this love one another is here. It's a, it's a covenantal love. It's a love that doesn't give up. It's a, it's a love that's corporate. In other words, it's us. So look around for a minute. You're all looking at me. Look around for a minute. I know, I usually don't do this. I'm punchy. I was gone for a couple weeks. <laughs> But this is who we are to love, one another. We're to love one another. It's this group of people. This group of people who are sitting here in Logansville, Ohio, who are called by God 
to do all these things for one another. It's you. It's us. And incidentally, this is the kind of love that that doesn't show up here on a Sunday morning and say something like, somebody better greet me today. Somebody better meet my needs. It's the kind of love that shows up saying just the opposite of that. Who do I need to greet this morning? Who, Who do I need to either hug or, in my case, give a firm handshake to? just not a hugger. Sorry. Who do I need to serve today? Again, Ephesians 4.16 says that we are joined and held together as a body. And just like a body, we have a head, and that is Christ. Listen again to verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ is our head. As a church, Christ is our head. Peter uses some different imagery he, he calls him the chief shepherd, the shepherd of shepherds. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, let me just read verses 1 through 5. We'll be here for a minute. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, as I said, being a Christian is not merely the outward actions. So being a Christian is not about doing things or not doing things. Being a Christian is about being redeemed and therefore being like Jesus. And so our mission as a church is to follow our chief shepherd, Jesus. So, is that it? Can we simply say that we follow Jesus and and hope that we all just get along? Can we disregard the Bible's teaching on, really, from the ministry of the apostles after Jesus' ascension? Can we forget all about those new what the New Testament has to say about about church leadership, about pastors and elders and overseers? No, because just before Paul tells us that we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, he said this in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. He said he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, pastor teachers is what that means, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. These are gifts to the church for the building up of the church. Listen to 1 Corinthians, you don't have to turn here, but 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 to 17 says this. 1 Corinthians 4, 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, he's correcting them, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. 
For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Elders who are commanded here in 1 Peter chapter 5 to, to pastor or to shepherd the flock of God are to remind us of the ways of Christ. That's sort of the simple job definition, job description, to remind us of the ways of Christ. And they're really supposed to do that in, in three ways. And let me give you these three ways, and then we're going to go back and look at each one. Okay? Three ways in which elders are to, be, um, to remind us of the ways of Christ. First, they're to be examples. They're to be examples. Second, they are to teach sound doctrine. To teach sound doctrine. We'll go back through these in a minute. And then third, they are to care for God's church. In other words, some have said it this way. This is maybe even easier to remember. They are to lead, feed, and protect. They're to lead, feed, and protect. So let's take a look at these three ways. And I want to point out right off the bat, before we go any further, that these three ways overlap significantly. They go together. We really can't pull them apart. And so the first way is that they are to lead by example, to provide oversight. They are to be examples. Uh, there, are, there are three significant passages on the, what we call the qualifications of an elder in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, and then the passage that we just read, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. And in each of these passages, you kind of have to look pretty closely to see what the, what the function of an elder actually is. And the reason that that is hard to see, the function, the work of an elder, why it's hard to see is that, that Paul and Peter, as they write these three different letters, they spend more time, or they spend more ink on the character of the man than on the job description. They spend more time talking about his character than on the job that he is to do. And incidentally, just as kind of a, kind of a side note, we don't have really time to get into this today, but I want to be clear that we understand that uh, the New Testament uses the terms elder and overseer, and overseer is some of the older versions. I know the King James, maybe some of the others, use the word bishop for overseer. The New Testament uses those terms, elder, overseer, or bishop, interchangeably. The term pastor is very similar, um, but often the term pastor is referring to a gift, as in Ephesians 4, or, or, or the function, or the shepherding. So in other words, often the pastor is a verb. It's what the elder does. He shepherds the flock of God, um, as opposed to a noun. An elder is always a noun in the New Testament. So all pastors are elders. Um, I would say it this way, though. Not all elders are gifted as pastors. Some have to work at it. Some have to work at it. They're all commanded, 1 Peter 5, commanded to shepherd the flock of God. But not all elders are naturally gifted at it. But all um, pastors are to be elders. So just so that we're clear on what we're talking about, so I'm going to use that term elder, but I'm going to mean really all three that we sometimes throw around, pastor, elder, overseer. So currently at Logansville Church, uh, Lyman and Chad and myself are the elders. Um, so let, let's look at this. Elders are to be examples. Going back here to 1 Peter chapter 5, just look quickly at verses 2 and 3. 
So 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3 says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under uh, compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I love that, that Peter uses the phrase, shepherd the flock, because that's, that's the same verb there. Shepherd is a verb. It's the same verb there that Jesus used to Peter in John 21, verse 6, when he reinstated Peter into ministry after Peter had denied Christ, when he says to him three times, tend my sheep, tend my sheep. Peter's passing on to the next generation of elders the care of God's flock. As God had, as Jesus specifically had instructed Peter to to shepherd the flock of God, Peter is now passing that on to the elders, to shepherd the flock of God, the church. Notice how he says to do it. He says, exercise oversight. Exercise oversight. That really means go ahead and lead. Lead by example. Not by domineering over them, he says. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not simply because, well, somebody has to do it, but because it is God's will for you. Peter says, this is what God has called you to do. And so you are to do this, to, to go ahead and lead the flock of God. But if you look, you can see that the actions in this passage are to, to shepherd the flock of God. That's an action verb. To exercise oversight. And notice that the elders are to do this by, by setting an example. Paul worded it like this. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is how shepherds, pastors, elders are to lead the church. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Does character matter? Does character matter? In our current political climate, many would say that it does not. Interestingly, at least on the conservative side of things, I don't even have to say a name and you know what I'm talking about, we sometimes say the character doesn't matter. 20 years ago, the story was completely opposite. Let me tell you, a, uh, by way of illustration, during the first debate of the 1996 presidential election, Jim Lair, he asked Bob Dole, remember Bob Dole? Jim Lair asked Bob Dole what the relevant differences were between Senator Dole and President Bill Clinton in the more, as he put it, personal areas of their lives. What is the relevant differences between Senator Dole and President Clinton in the, in the personal areas of their lives? And this was, by all accounts, Clinton's biggest political vulnerability. If you remember the 90s, you remember this, the character issue. Dole responded by saying, and this is telling in our current climate, Dole said this, I don't like to get into personal matters. As far as I'm concerned, this is a campaign about issues. And Dole went on to lose the election and then move out of the public eye. Franklin Roosevelt once said that the American presidency is, quote, preeminently a place for moral leadership. And now that I've said that, get it out of your head and consider this instead. How much more so should the leadership of the church be preeminently a place of moral leadership? How much more so 
should the leaders of Christ's church be preeminently a place of moral leadership. Now, there's more to it than that. Character does matter, though. Peter says that, that elders are to lead by being an example. An example of willingly serving God. Of willingly laying aside, he says here, opportunities for financial gain. I love the King James, which says here, calls this, this financial gain, uh, filthy lucre. Fast cash is what that means, really. Instead, elders are to be an example of humbly serving the people in the church. He actually says, those in your charge, which means specifically the, the elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Those in your charge here in this church. Let me show you what this looks like. There is, um, there's so much the elders do that no one else in the church will ever know about. And sometimes people will actually ask me what, what I actually do during the week, and, I, and I, sometimes I can't give great concrete answers. And so I want to give you just a little glimpse, but I'm not going to tell you a story about me. When I was an intern, pastoral intern down in Xenia, our pastor took me on visitation several times. And there was one time, I remember clearly, we went into Dayton to some nursing home to visit a couple who had attended the church for many years. Uh, after visiting and praying with the couple, reading some scripture, the pastor pulled out some paperwork, and he never said anything to me about this, but I was sitting there and I realized pretty quickly that um, he was going over some financial items with the, the husband. And I figured out that our pastor had made all of the arrangements for the nursing home for this elderly couple. And, and on top of all of that, he was actually working with a realtor on their behalf to sell their home. And as far as I know, he was the only one who ever visited them. They had nobody else. He cared for them. He humbly served them. And in so doing, he humbly served God. Nobody else knew about it. That's the kind of quiet, humble leadership that, that we need to follow. When we say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want to, the elephant in the room for me is that I'm the one up here having to say all this. And I fail in these ways so many times. So bear with me. Paul builds on this idea of leading by example in Titus chapter 1. Turn over to Titus 1. Verses 5 through 9, these are the qualifications, but listen to how he words this. Um, the idea of leading by example. In Titus 1, verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. I want you to notice something from this passage. These are all external observations. This list of what the elder should be like, 
their external qualifications. In other words, Paul is telling Titus to look for these character qualities in men who would be elders. So what we don't do is simply ask a man to rate himself in these areas. Titus is not handing out a, a checklist to all elder applicants in, uh, in Crete. You know, rate, rate yourself and score from 1 to 10 on how you're doing in these areas. And if you score high enough, you're in. These traits here in Paul's letter to Titus are observable characteristics of an elder's spiritual life. These need to be things that we can see, that the church can see, that the people can see that the community can see, things that, that people in our church, people in our, in our community, people at their work can say, yeah, that actually does describe him. Yes, that man is above reproach. Yeah, he is blameless. doesn't mean that he's sinless. It means that he lives a, a lifestyle of, of repentance a lifestyle of continually turning toward God, a lifestyle of pursuing the ways of Christ. He's blameless in his relationship with his wife and his children. He's a spiritual leader in the home. He's blameless in his conduct. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness. He's not violent, he's not greedy for filthy lucre, fast cash, dishonest gain. Instead, he's He's hospitable, both in his life and in his home. He's a lover of good. He's self-controlled. He's upright. He's holy. He's disciplined. We could describe him as a man after God's own heart, to use the Old Testament phrase. Not only does he lead by example, look again at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He teaches sound doctrine. This is the second way in which elders shepherd the flock of God. He's a man who teaches the truth of God's word. He feeds the sheep, to use the biblical metaphor. Remember, these are, these are Christ's sheep. This is uh, the flock of God. This guy is just the under-shepherd. I think it's significant that Paul puts this at the end, verse 9, at the end of this list of qualifications, because the elder's teaching flows out of both his character and his holding firm to the trustworthy word of God. I've said it before, but the, the office of elder is not an, it's not an office for a place for someone who has potential, someone who has potential. The office of elder is a place for someone who meets the qualifications. Um, biblically, we choose a man to be an elder because he's already meeting these criteria. And here in Titus, the, the character traits build up to this final statement here in verse 9. He must hold to the trustworthy word as taught so that he can teach and even correct those in his care. Now flip back a couple of pages to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to show you something. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And I want you to notice first uh, how similar the passage are, passages are between Titus and 1 Timothy 3. But then also notice what Paul says about teaching. So keep that in your mind, teaching. 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. One of the qualifications that Paul mentions in this passage right there, and I pointed it out, is that he is to be able to teach. A better way of saying this is, I believe the King James actually uses the phrase, apt to teach. Apt to teach. It's really what it means. Here's what that is not. It does not mean that he went to school to be a teacher. That's not what it means. It does not mean that he must be willing and able to preach. That's not even what it means. To stand up in front and use a microphone and be scared out of your mind. It happens. That's not what it's talking about. This is specifically about his giftedness and his function. The rest of the qualifications are about his character, but this one is a gift and a task. And the reason that I like, that I like the phrase apt to teach a little bit better than able to teach is because when someone is apt to teach, he's someone that we're drawn to with our questions because of his godly character. He's someone that, that when we're scratching our heads trying to figure out God's word, we go to him and say, what does this mean? Or we look at his marriage and we say, can you teach me to be a godly husband? I'm having these problems with my kids. Can you help me out? What does it mean to be a Christian, really? Help me make these decisions in life. An elder is able with a clean conscience to say, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Elders remind us of Christ by leading by example. And because of the example of his life, he will be apt to teach the trustworthy word to which he is holding firm. See, all of this is intertwined. And the point of all of this is to point us back to Christ. The way the elders point us to Christ, and I want you to see this morning, this is found in verses 4 and 5 there of 1 Timothy 3, when it says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Care for God's church. This is the third way in which elders show us Christ. They care for Christ's church. Implicit in these verses, stated right there, how will he, if he can't, if he can't take care of his own family, how will he care for Christ's church? Do you see how all of this is intertwined? An elder is responsible for leading people to God through teaching them the scriptures and through the example of a life that is honoring to God. He is to care for God's church by leading them in holiness, by leading them in obedience, by caring for them. Alexander Strzok, who literally wrote the book on biblical eldership, that's the name of the book, he says this. He says, elders lead the church, teach and preach the word, 
protect the church from false teachers, exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, visit the sick and pray and judge doctrinal issues. In biblical terminology, elders shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the local church. You may have noticed that as I've read through these passages, I I didn't go through each of the character qualifications this morning. Um, What I've tried to do is we've kind of very, very quickly walked through is to give you an overview of what it means for elders to shepherd the flock of God that is here among us. As we look at the state of the church, as we look at the state of our church, we must resolve that we cannot be like the world. We must resolve that we cannot be like the world. The world is headed down the same drain the nation of Israel was headed down during the time of the judges. I think we can all agree on that. The time of the judges, nation of Israel was described like this. In those days, there was no king in the land, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Or as they say nowadays, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. We have a king. In those days, there was no king in the land, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes, but we have a king. Jesus. We have a great shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We have a a good shepherd who turned to Peter and said, Do you love me? Then tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Shepherd the flock of God. Jesus gives us elders to remind us of the ways of Christ. As Paul put it there in in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And they do that. Elders do this by caring for the church as Christ cared for the church. They do this through teaching us the word that God has given us. They do this through leading us and providing oversight. And all of this flows out of a life that is to be characterized in every way as above reproach, as blameless, as pointing to Christ. So back to the beginning now. As a church, we're to be deep and wide. We're to be disciple-making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, Jesus said. We should be disciple-making disciples who are joined and held together in love for one another as we pursue being obedient to those commands of all those 59 one-anothers. Our shepherd, to shepherd us in doing these things, Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, has given the church biblically qualified men who've been given the charge to shepherd the flock of God through oversight, through teaching, and and care for God's church. I urge you then, be imitators of me, Paul wrote. And so this morning, this has been in the bulletin for a few weeks. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. But this morning, the elders of the church are putting forward for your consideration for your examination, even. Steve Crum, to serve alongside Chad, Lyman, and myself uh, as elders of this church. So here's your charge. Examine Steve thoroughly. Talk to him. Talk to Annalisa. He's not sinless. His children will be the first to admit that. Invite them over to dinner. Get to know them. 
sit under his teaching as you have done for the last couple of weeks when I was gone. As you have other opportunity and there will be others in the future. And I think most importantly, pray for Steve. Pray for his family. Pray for Chad. Pray for Lyman. Pray for me. None of us, I can tell you, none of us takes this responsibility lightly. I don't flippantly preach this sermon. I've been preaching this sermon to myself for a long time. Uh, Last night I got a text. Where's Charlie? Last night I got a text and Steve said, my son just said to me, Pastor Kidder better do a good job tomorrow because he's had three weeks to prepare. I said, well, just tell him the sermon's all about his dad. (laughs) That's about us. I've had years to prepare. And I I can tell you there are times I don't feel prepared. I don't feel like I should be the one up here preaching it. Yet God has chosen us. And God has chosen this church and brought us all together. And so let me finish by, by reading Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17. In verse 7, the author of Hebrews says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Then in verse 17, he actually says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And I'll tell you, that is the most terrifying sentence for me in Scripture. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So I'm begging you to pray for us, to pray for our church constantly. Let's pray. Father, serving you is a joy. It is a privilege. It is a great responsibility. And while we're talking about elders this morning, there are so many uh, responsibilities that come with just with being a Christian, with being your children. But Lord, we can put our great hope in the fact that Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can put great joy and hope in, in, in what was said of Abraham, that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We can put great joy and trust in the fact that you have granted to us repentance and that the Christian life is one of repentance. It is falling down, but then being able to get back up again being able to look to Christ again. It is the church helping one another up, holding one another up, pointing one another at Christ, carrying one another, loving one another, that we may glorify our Father in heaven. And so, Lord, we take these things seriously. We ask that you would give us the grace that we need. We ask that you would give us the endurance that we need as believers, as your children, to be obedient to your commands. And Lord, we cling to your promise, to your statement that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
We pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be praised. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.